We're in Daniel chapter 2. We pick up uh, particularly in verses 31 through 49. And in this chapter and this section particularly, we get to now focus our attention on the prophecy revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar. We get to look at this marvelous dream. In God's historical work, he has chosen the nation of Israel to bless that nation, to demonstrate his great and marvelous work among that people. If they had obeyed him, he would bless them. If they disobeyed, they would be under his judgment. If they obeyed, they would enjoy favor, protection from God, blessing, prosperity and peace. If they disobeyed, they would be under God's judgment, God's wrath. And the history of the Old Testament recounts the rebellion of Israel and the pursuing and chastening of God and the the judgment that ultimately came upon the nation of Israel. The northern tribes were captured first by the Assyrians. That Assyrian captivity began, the siege began in 740 B.C. and concluded in 722 B.C. The nation and the land has ultimately never been fully restored since that time. In 605 B.C., the context that we find here in Daniel, the southern tribe, Judah, was conquered And by 586, they were fully destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar had allowed them to continue for a while. But ultimately, after attempts of rebellion, they were destroyed. The nation of Israel has never been the same since that. Even when they were allowed to return after 70 years of captivity, allowed to rebuild their temple, allowed to rebuild their walls, they were never the same They were only a semblance of what they originally were. And they lived, by the time of Christ, when Christ came, they lived under the thumb of Rome. And eventually, as they rebelled against Rome, they too were destroyed. In AD 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Roman army. Only for that nation, having been wiped out, to be reborn again, May 14th, 1948, After the difficulties, after the Holocaust, after the great persecutions at the hands of the Germans, they were allowed to be identified as a nation once again. God has continued to demonstrate that he has a people, he has preserved Israel, he is going to demonstrate his work in Israel, but there is a period of time in between that. If you look over at Luke chapter 21... I just want to show you our Lord's words here before we look again at Daniel 2. Luke chapter 21. Here, Jesus is describing the end time events. And describing the end time events, he's speaking of the calamities and the difficulties and the wars that will come during that time, and particularly going to come against Jerusalem talks about in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you recognize that her desolation is near. Verse 21, those, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Verse 22, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. 
Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Now verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And notice, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And here's the key phrase, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's judgment upon Jerusalem, judgment upon Israel, until this period of time, particularly the time of the Gentiles, has been fulfilled. This time of the Gentiles begins here back in Daniel, back in 605 B.C., Back at the time in which Nebuchadnezzar finally conquers Judah, takes over, and this vision comes to Nebuchadnezzar explaining God's work among the Gentile nations. We're living in the time of the Gentiles, the time in which the Gentiles are allowed to rule and reign, the time in which they're given prosperity, given the opportunity to demonstrate their authority and rule, this time and that is known as, again, the time of the Gentiles. Of course, in this time comes the church age. In and during this time comes God's dealing among the Gentiles as he established the church, which, as Ephesians 3 tells us, was a mystery which in previous generations was hidden. We go all the way back to Daniel's prophecy, and we come to Daniel chapter 2, And we see God unfolding his plan from the beginning to the end. From the beginning of his rule, this time of rule among the Gentiles, to the final end when the eternal kingdom is established and the reign of Christ is set up and he rules over the whole world. That's how it all ends. Before we get to the end, we have to start at the beginning and that's exactly where we're at here in Daniel chapter 2. God is, in his marvelous mercy, incredible grace, revealed to the first Gentile king to rule during this time. He unfolded his mysterious plan. This would be this timing, as we noted in the beginning of chapter 2. The timing of this is about 603 B.C., That is 2,625 years ago from this time, God unfolded to King Nebuchadnezzar in a dream exactly how all of history was going to unfold. The significant events that were going to take place, the various kingdoms that would rise up, what would be accomplished in that time, and how it was all going to come to an end. All of that is unfolded here. We will see the first part of all that tonight. We will see up through the time of the reign of Greece, and then we will look at the last part, the last kingdom, next time we gather together. But here, God reveals in this significant dream to a Gentile ruler what he was going to take place, and he uses Nebuchadnezzar as the agent to receive this dream And Daniel is the one who is going to explain it. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the perfect choice as a wise man, a military leader, a powerful leader, a one who ruled ruthlessly, the one who demonstrated great skill in battle. He had destroyed the Ninevites. He had pushed back the Egyptians. He had demonstrated great authority. And now he is, as we find ourselves in chapter 2 here, troubled by the dream that he had received. Troubled at what he had saw, troubled because he didn't know the interpretation, troubled because he didn't know who to trust, troubled, and therefore he was a bit hysterical. And as we're going to see when we look at this dream here, this is a prophecy, an announcement of what is to come into the future. And just by a little subpoint here, I just need to remind you, as we head into prophecy, here is what you're going to see. We're going to handle the prophecy in a historical grammatical hermeneutic, which means that we're going to walk through the text. We're going to take it plainly for what it says. We are going to draw out its meaning. And we understand that in the prophecy, there's a use of symbolism And in these symbols, there is for us, by the context, explanation as to what they mean. So we're going to allow Daniel to explain to us the interpretation. We're going to rely on context. And then we're going to look to the rest of Scripture. We're going to look at the the continued revelation or progressive revelation to see the unfolding explanation. We're going to look at the historical events and see how the historical events point to and affirm the interpretation. And then where there are mysteries, where we do not know, we will be just like the Old Testament prophets longing to understand the timing and meaning of these things. And we're fine with that. We're fine with letting God reveal what he wants to reveal when he reveals it to us. And one thing that you're going to see as we work our way through this is the exacting detail by which God declared events to come and then fulfills it. It fulfills them perfectly. And we're going to expect that all out of most of these details having been fulfilled, that the final details left to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled in the exact same way as the first details. Literally, historically, exactly as God had unfolded it. And we'll see that as we work through this text. Now, again... In this, just remember the setting here in chapter 2. The king had sent out a decree. The king had, in that decree, since there were no answers from the wise men, had decreed that all the wise men were to be put to death. Arioch, the captain of the bodyguard, was there, likely with his sword drawn, ready to take Daniel's life, and Daniel was able to gain favor from Arioch and to pursue enough time to get the dream and bring an answer. Now Arioch, here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 25, brings Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar, anticipating that Daniel is going to be able to give an answer. I noticed last time, notice as verse 25 says there, it says, I have found a man among the, inside, the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Arioch here is taking great pride in what he has found, an answer to Nebuchadnezzar. But it's also true that Arioch is demonstrating great faith in Daniel. 
that he is willing even to put his own neck on the line, that this guy can give an answer. And ultimately, if that guy failed, and if he failed miserably, the likelihood is Arioch wouldn't be looking so good either. But he had confidence in Daniel. And he brings Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, now where we left the story was Nebuchadnezzar was intrigued. Does Daniel truly have the ability to understand and explain this dream? And now we find ourselves in the unbelievable dream, starting in verse 31 through 35. Here's what Daniel records. You, O king, were looking and behold... There is a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continue looking until a stone which was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, the reoccurring dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the dream that kept him up and kept him in despair. Now, as I said, if we just had that, we would have no possible way of understanding the meaning of all of that. But luckily, Daniel gives us that meaning. And before I give you that meaning, let's just make some observations of this particular dream, and then we will jump to Daniel's interpretation of it. There's some simple observations here that we can make. First of all, this is of a statue. And the statue is made up of materials in descending value. You move from gold to silver to bronze to iron and iron and clay. In the descending value of that, you see the weakening of that particular statue as it descends in value. But while it also descends in value, the opposite is also true. It gets stronger in its strength. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver. Iron is stronger than bronze. So there is an increasing strength in regards to the materials used. We also observe in this particular statue the terrible fate that the statue receives. It's destroyed by a rock. This rock that is made without hands, is pulled out, is thrust upon the statue. It crushes the feet of the statue and destroys it. Then the whole statue, all the metals are crushed and shattered into small pieces so that the wind can drive it away. And finally, as demonstrated, that rock becomes a giant mountain filling the whole earth. And in filling the whole earth demonstrates, of course, its dominance. And you would begin to ask the question, why a rock and why a mountain and why, all, why this picture like this? Well, it's 
First of all, important to note this, that the Babylonian god Marduk was known and considered as, by the Babylonians as the great mountain. The mountains were considered to be the dwelling place of the god Marduk. Reynolds Showers observes that many of the Babylonian temples looked like mountains to reflect their belief in God. So that when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this rock becoming a great mountain filling the whole earth, he was aware immediately this is a divine judgment. The the Babylonians themselves called the earth Mountain House. So when Nebuchadnezzar saw the final mountain, he could recognize immediately this is a judgment of their God. Second of all, the rock made without hands would also point to the fact that this is a divine judgment, a divine activity. This wasn't caused by human instrument. This was divine interaction. And then thirdly, when that rock crushed the entire statue, shattering it entirely so that the wind can drive it away, the Babylonians also observed that Marduk was the god of winds, would drive the winds. So the winds blowing upon the materials and sending it away is a description of the divine judgment So that is very likely why Nebuchadnezzar was in arms. It was disturbed in the middle of the night when he had this dream. He recognized that his god, Marduk, was angry, and he wants to know when this judgment is coming and if there's any way to stop it. That's why his response was severe. That's why he was impatient for the answer. That's why he wanted to test his spiritual leaders to see if they could understand and give the answer. This is why he was deeply concerned. To which he's anticipating something's happening among his gods. And you remember what Daniel says. On the contrary, he reminds, you, he reminds us again back in verse 28 through 30. Or actually, starting in verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, As for the mystery about the king and his inquir- uh, has inquired, neither wise men, conjurer, magician, or diviners are able to declare to the king, verse 28, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. You think this is Marduk, you think this is your God, you think this is your divine judgment. It's not about your gods, this is about the King of Heaven, about the God of Heaven, who's going to tell you what's going to take place until the latter days. It's the God of Heaven who speaks here, it's the God of Heaven you ought to fear. What was this dream? What is its meaning? Well, that's where we turn our attention now. The unobstructed revelation Starting in verse 36, we'll just read all of Daniel's uh, interpretation of it from 36 to 45 and then turn our attention back to understand it. Here's what Daniel explains the the vision to mean. This was the dream. Now we tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom... The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. 
And wherever the son of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw that iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will in itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. This is the marvelous interpretation to this dream. As this, there are six parts to this. We will get through three tonight and three the next time. First part of this dream is the head of gold, verses 36 through 38. And again, this was the dream. You, O king, are the king of kings. To whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. What is remarkable about this particular dream and prophecy is the significant details about each of these aspects of the statue. They represent, each of these aspects of the statue, represent kings and kingdoms. There were four kings and four kingdoms. Actually, it be more than four, as we will see. But there are kings and kingdoms that rule to come The first king in the first kingdom is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This great dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar because he was, again, the head of gold here. He is the one to hear this interpretation and hear this dream. And it is a significant dream because it is going to give you the roadmap until the end of times. It's going to explain all that is to take place. 
And here Daniel starts by coming and pointing out that Nebuchadnezzar is the king, is the head of this. He is, again, the gold head in this statue. The God of heaven has made Nebuchadnezzar this. The God of heaven has given to Nebuchadnezzar power and authority and rule. The God of heaven has given to Nebuchadnezzar dominion over the earth. The God of heaven has given Nebuchadnezzar this kind of splendor and glory. And notice as Daniel gives this interpretation, he establishes two truths. The first of all is this, that the God of heaven is the sovereign God who rules over the nations. As he unfolds to Nebuchadnezzar what is going to take place, and he describes these kings and their kingdoms, he is describing God's absolute authority over each one of these Gentile nations. The Babylonians, who would be taken captive by the Medo-Persians, the Medo-Persians who would be taken captive by by Greece, Greece, the Hellenistic period, which would end at the hands of Rome. Those Declarations of God declaring what is going to take place in the ruling of the Gentile nations. God is orchestrating all the events, moving and directing, so that the rise of these Gentile nations are rising up at the hand of God, by the will of God. So in one sense, there's the establishing of the principle here that there is no escape over God's sovereign rule. The second aspect that is being demonstrated as we start here, that Daniel's explaining, is that again, this statue refers to kings and kingdoms. Each represents a different era. Each aspect of the statue, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, each represents a different era, a different kingdom, a different king and leadership over that era so that there is a clear distinction in each period. And you will note, as we work our way through this, that again, there's an interchanging between the king and the kingdom. You notice that the, uh, he said in verses 36 through 38, and verse 37 particularly, you, O king, are the head of gold. You are, again, this, uh, this, the head. But then, verse 39 After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So you have, again, the distinction is he's moving in between the king and the kingdom. Often in ancient time, a king would be reflected by his kingdom. And a kingdom, of course, would bring honor to the particular king. And that's what's demonstrated here. Now back to our emphasis here in this section, that... Daniel is making clear here that Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest. He is the head of gold. And he, in verse 38, indicates again what he gets to accomplish. Verse 38, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You have full authority over all the earth. It's, you get to be, again, the dominant king, recognized as the head of gold. In what sense? Well, in this sense, that he has pure, 
unbridled power. He is unlike, again, the kingdoms that are going to follow after him and the kings of those kingdoms that are going to follow after them. They are all going to be increasingly restrained. But Nebuchadnezzar, the first of these kings, leads with an unrestrained authority. Notice again in verse 37 what he is called. You, O king, and now this phrase, are the king of kings. There's only, again, this is, there's another time that he's called this. Ezekiel chapter 26 and verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is the king of kings. Ezekiel's prophecy and here in Daniel's prophecy, twice he is called the king of kings. There's only one other earthly king recognized as the king of kings, and that's King Artaxerxes, seen in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 12. The next king of kings and lord of lords is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's anticipated in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14 and chapter 19 and verse 16. The one who is going to come to rule and reign, this one who's going to sit on this throne, is going to be known as the king of kings and the lord of lords. But the first is recognized here as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, who was formerly the military leader, the general of the, the military, who had, again, the loyal following of the military, was unrivaled in his authority in his kingdom. There was no one or nothing above Nebuchadnezzar. He was really the original dictator. There's no way, there's no authority above Nebuchadnezzar. He had, he had unfettered power. This is what makes him, again, the head of gold. In the truest sense then, you could say of King Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled over all with no limitations. His army was loyal to him. He had no uh, political parties that he had to account to, no senates, no uh, other courts that he had to give an account to. He was, again, the head, the ruler over it all. Not so for King Cyrus, who would come later, the head of the Medes and the Persians. When King Cyrus came, King Cyrus was under the law of the Medes and the Persians. So even King Cyrus, when, when a, uh, a law was given that was uh, contrary to his will, he was still bound by the law of the Medes and the Persians. There were commands that he was obligated to. As you move on, whether through Greece or even ultimately by the time of Rome, the, the Roman Empire was still accountable to the Senate. So that the, as time moved on, that king, while having authority, didn't have the same kind of unbridled authority that, that Nebuchadnezzar had. He is the head of gold. I've told you, as we've looked at this, that Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 parallel, and Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 parallel, and Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5 work in parable. Well, Daniel chapter 7 in parallel speaks of, again, Nebuchadnezzar. Turn over to chapter 7. You can just keep a finger there in 2. Daniel chapter 7, the king is also referred to here. 
in verses 2 through 4, it says, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Daniel begins to give an interpretation of four beasts. What are these beasts particularly? Well, jump down to verse 17. There is the explanation. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. The first was the explanation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the four are going to, as we will see when we get to chapter 7, the four are reflecting the four kings that are ahead of, as part of this vision here in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar was described as a beast that was able to, to stand like a man. We'll explain that when we get to chapter 7. We'll figure out that mysteries later. But as for now, the point is here, this particular vision is describing, we can turn back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is giving explanation as to the kingdoms to come. And Nebuchadnezzar was the great ruler, the first ruler, the head of gold. This leads us to the second part of the dream, the body of silver. Verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom, and all they say of it is, it's inferior to you. And he ends. No more to that kingdom than after that a third. It's all that he says about this kingdom. The second kingdom is inferior to you. You jump back to verse 32. You see that the head of the statue was fine gold. Its breast was and its arms of silver. This is the second kingdom. The second kingdom is inferior to the first. And the second kingdom is made of silver. We know historically that this was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. This took place in 539 B.C. when King Cyrus came and conquered Babylon and had taken over. I should point out to you that this has been the historical interpretation of the church for many generations. The, the standard evangelical Interpretation, the church interpretation believes that these kingdoms are Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greece, and Rome. But critical scholars have come along and said the division is Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. They come along and say all of this has been fulfilled before the coming of Christ. They want Daniel's prophecy to be over before the Lord Jesus Christ arrives on earth. But there are problems with that view. Let me just give you a few of the problems. First of all, there is no historical record of a division between the media and Persians. There is no kingdom of media. Where were they ruling at? How were they operating? In fact, it was Cyrus who came and conquered, and he was known as the king of the Persians. The Medes and 
the Persians. And if you look over, secondly, in Daniel chapter 5, notice in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 28, when the handwriting of, on, comes, an inscription on the wall, you know, the meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsen. And the interpretation of that is in verse 28, Perez means what? Your kingdom has been divided. And notice, it's been given over to the Medes and the Persians, recognizing them as one group. And over in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 8, you also recognize in Daniel 6, 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law, notice, of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. There was a recognition that this group was one empire, the Medes and the Persians. It was the one law ruling over this entire empire. And then, of course, later in Daniel chapter 8, there will be two groups or two uh, animals represented there. Those two animals reflect Gentile kingdoms as the ram and the shaggy goat. And the shaggy goat represents Greece and the ram represents the Medes and the Persians, one empire. But there's one more argument that I give you, and it's the f- most important and significant the argument of our Lord Jesus Christ when he says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus Christ realized all the prophecies in Daniel had not yet been fulfilled. So back to here, back to Daniel chapter 2 then. What do we have here? We have the second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. This is the kingdom that it has two elements to it. It is made of silver, recognized as silver, and it is inferior to the head of gold. And historians, when you go back and trace the Medo-Persians, you recognize that they highly valued silver. Just like the Babylonians highly valued gold, the Babylonians valued gold so much that they used gold in their buildings. Often in their construction, they would be highlighted in gold in their buildings because they valued gold. Well, the Medo-Persians valued silver. Silver was the basis of their currency. Silver is what helped them grow in their economic strength. They had economic power. They highly valued silver. So for the Medes and the Persians, uh, silver clearly reflected what they valued. But they were considered, as the text indicates here, inferior, in some way inferior to King Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't inferior in size. Historically, you can go back and see that the Medo-Persian kingdom was larger than the kingdom of Babylon. So it wasn't inferior in size. certainly wasn't inferior in might because they conquered Babylon. So if it wasn't military might and it wasn't size, how were they inferior? Well, again, they were inferior in the sense that they had, again, restraints that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C., 208 years, versus 46 years of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. 
So the two were significantly separate. Again, again, the ruler is described as inferior, and I think he's inferior in this sense that he doesn't have the same rule and reign. doesn't have the same unbridled control. He is limited in some way. Daniel 7, 5 describes him as one of the beasts as devouring much meat. It grew big. It was, uh, again, a one with great teeth in its mouth, and it would rise and eat. It was a consuming kingdom. And again, we'll see that when we get to chapter 7. This leads us to the third part. The third part is the belly and the thighs of bronze there. Second half of verse 39, then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. This statue in in 2 verse 32 says its its belly and its thighs of bronze. This kingdom, this kingdom of bronze, it was the nation of Greece. And its great ruler was that of Alexander the Great. This is the Hellenistic period. And Alexander the Great went went out and conquered the known world at the time. When he died in 323 B.C., his kingdom was then divided between his four generals who went out and then ruled in their areas for the remaining years until Greece was then taken over by Rome or conquered by Rome. They were known again as valued bronze. They valued bronze because their weapons were made of bronze. And their weaponry was stronger than the weaponry of the others around. It was certainly, again, stronger than silver, but more than that, they would use their marvelous weapons to be able to conquer the other nations. And history, of course, demonstrates the greatness of Alexander the Great and how rapidly he went around and conquered the other nations. It's interesting if you turn over to chapter 7 and verse 6 and see the description of this particular beast. Daniel 7, verse 6. It's described. It says, I, I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings and a bird. And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Again, describing four heads, four leaders, just as history has shown us the kingdom separated to four different generals that would rule in that kingdom after the death of Alexander the Great. Exacting, specific detail fulfilled. This particular period, we don't know when it ends. We know that Greece ruled from 331 B.C. until the time of the rise of Rome. What we don't know is when Rome began. You could trace Rome back to 146 B.C. at the conquest of Carthage. You could go back to... 63 B.C. and Pompey's conquest of Syria-Palestine, or you could go to 27 B.C. when Octavian was renamed to Caesar Augustus as the first Roman emperor. And one of those would be a recognition of the establishment of the great Rome. 
Until that time, there's the reign of Greece, and it was recognized as the third aspect of this particular vision, the belly and the thighs of bronze. Well, the next time we come back, we're going to look at the most significant part of all this, Rome, and its division between two parts, and particularly the first half of this, which has been fulfilled, and the second half, is, which is yet fully to be revealed. And since I left my family hanging last week by not reading the prophecy, let me just finish here these two parts. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these things in pieces. This is the Roman Empire. When we will see the demonstration of this Roman Empire and its long rule and its long reign and conquering. But it too was divided. And it comes to the fifth part of the vision, the feet and toes. And the significant details about the feet and the toes and the multiple toes and the multiple kings and the anticipation of the final events. Lord willing, we will make enough time since it's evening service to point out how that will connect to God's final activities and the coming of the king who will establish his rule and reign. So what's important for us to take out of this is this. First of all, that God is in control of the Gentile nations and he's working in all things. He raises up nations, he takes nations down. He gives them authority and he takes away their authority. He works and he moves and operates. I think that's important. If you want to and are opposed to particular authorities, recognize you might be fighting against God's divine will. As you're trying to justify your particular behaviors, you might recognize that the sovereign God who's working in all things might be working according to his eternal purposes, and you ought to be very careful how you operate so as not to work against the divine will. He establishes kings, and he even limits those kings on their authority. He establishes rule, and he even governs that rule. Because ultimately what's going to come is the final judgment of God where he, he crushes those earthly kingdoms and establishes his heavenly and righteous kingdom in Christ. Second thing we ought to see in all this is this, is that God still has a plan for his people and he's going to fulfill that plan. I like the way Paul said it in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul knew this plan. Christ recognized this plan. Daniel had this plan revealed to him multiple times, as we will see in the book of Daniel, God is going to fulfill what he has said in regards to establishing the order that he wants to establish, the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next week, we'll, next time we come together, in a couple of weeks, we will see the rest of that. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. 
And in the midst, when our hearts are fearful, when we see the struggles around us, when we are doubting, when we are uh, caught up in the uncertainties, may we come back to these truths and remind ourselves the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits on his thrones, the sovereign God who orchestrates and directs all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing surprises you. Nothing is, will catch you off guard. There's nothing in the heart of man, nothing in the plans of man, nothing in the unfolding of history that catches you off guard. You direct all things according to the counsel of your will and you will accomplish all your good purposes. And ultimately, while the individual events of each day are moving in headlong into the fulfillment of your purpose and plan, we know you will establish your kingdom and establish your rule over the whole earth. And there will, there will be a reign of righteousness and godliness. Until that time, may we rejoice in anticipation of your righteous rule. And may we continue to anticipate now what it is that we will experience in all of eternity, living in the kingdom of righteousness, delighting in it, not growing fearful, not doubting, not wandering or drifting away, but anticipating the riches of your glorious reign. We're so thankful for just the fulfillment of prophecy up until this point, the number of ways in which you declared events well before they took place, and then the exacting detail of the unfolding of those events only encourages our heart all the more to know you will fulfill all of your good purposes. And indeed, they are good. So when we doubt, Father, may we fix our eyes on what you have revealed. It's in your glorious name we pray. Amen.